The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Hebrews 10:19-25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated us for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness, a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Pass over to Jimmy. Awesome. Thank you so much, Holly. Um, I've been uh, praying this week about this morning and my prayer has been that God would do um, impossible things in our hearts. That we can't change our heart, we can't, uh, we can't make ourselves more righteous or anything like that. We need God to do the impossible things uh, that he calls us to do. We, when we come together as the people of God, we, we don't come together as people who have decided to join a club or who have simply subscribed to a set of beliefs. We have come together as people who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what we're united around. We're looking this morning at Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Uh, this is an explosive passage. This is perhaps one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It might just be one of the most important verses, passages in the entire Bible. I say that about a lot of verses. Um, every verse in the Bible is the most important verse in the Bible, but this one really is uh, important. The last time I preached on this was at the very beginning of 2020, and I preached that at the beginning of that year with great expectations and plans for how that year was going to show, how that year was going to play out. Um, but I, I, we, I preached this passage over the course of three weeks, and even then it felt rushed. And so this morning we're not going to get to go as deep as I'd like to, but we're going to at least touch on, it, on, on the key things that are here for that. Um, I'm preaching on this passage this morning as a bit of a standalone, once-off sermon because it so wonderfully articulates the spectacular reality that is central to the identity of every single Christian only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That We're going to read some things that are central to our identity as Christians and those things are central to our identity only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shows us what it looks to live a life centered on the good news of Jesus. It's a fantastic text to celebrate the glory of God today on our fifth birthday, and it's a good one to get our minds into gear. So let's pray, and we're going to commit this time together in, uh, in God's word to him. Lord, we are asking for an impossible thing. We're asking, Lord, that you would make yourself more central to our lives than what you were when we woke up this morning. And we, Lord, we know, Lord, that that's impossible because in our sin, we can't make that decision. But by your grace, you have revealed to us the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And by your spirit, we receive that. We receive it by the faith that is given to, you, to us as a gift from you, Lord. And so everything that we are asking for this morning, nothing of it we can do ourselves. We're asking you to do this in, in us, Lord. Give us the faith to put back into you, Lord. Give us your Holy Spirit to believe, Lord, these, these wonderful truths about who you are and then because of who you are, who we are, Lord. And we ask, Father, that as we read your word, that we would not 
shrug our shoulders of it or roll our eyes off it, about it or, or let it pass over us as if it doesn't matter, Lord, but it would hit us right in our guts, Lord, right in our hearts. That we would be forever changed because of, because of you, Jesus. We thank you for your word, Lord. We ask that it would instruct us, mold us, shape us, disciple us, that it would correct us, that it would encourage us as we need it, Father. Amen. The conviction behind planting this church uh, five years ago was the blistering reality of God and, and that he ought to be the central, uh, absolutely central to absolutely everyone and absolutely everything. The path of a disciple leads closer and closer to that reality, making God more and more central in, the, in our lives. The life of a disciple is the ever-increasing knowledge of the greatness of God and his worthiness to occupy ground zero in our hearts. God's power is limitless. There are all sorts of other attempts at power by mankind, whether that's scientific power or geopolitical power or relational power, but God's might and strength overwhelms and crushes every single attempt that we make as individuals to achieve power. God's wisdom and knowledge does not know a single boundary. Whether we're talking about the individual molecules of our body or the temperature on the surface of the sun right now, or the, the trajectory of the swimming patterns of the giants of the deepest oceans, or the intimate personal hidden thoughts in our minds, there is not a single subject that God is not intimately and intensely acquainted with, more than we know ourselves. God's beauty is unmatched. All the delicacies, all the treats, all the pleasures, all the joys, all the nice things, all the lovely things, if they were all to come together, they would be as pus compared to the glory and beauty of our Lord. His beauty is absolutely unmatched. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. God is perfect in the purity and the goodness of his will and of his agenda and of his schemes. He is above reproach. He is above every single question. No one can stay his hand. No one can ask him, what have you done? Because his perspective and because his plan takes into account all of the good for all of mankind, for all of eternity, there is not an act of God which is not perfectly just and good. And the earth-shattering truth behind the realities of this text that we're about to look at this morning is going to compel our hearts to new levels of worship if we would simply forsake all other things this morning and get our eyes on Jesus. Get our eyes on the glory of God and understand that He is more important, more beautiful, more wise, more perfect, more wonderful, more incredible. He is bigger than anything else, than the sum of all things in this entire world. Our passage begins with this word, therefore. And if you are new here at church, you'll, um, well, if you're a regular here at church, you'll hear me saying quite often, when you see the word, therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? Because it's a really, really important word. The word, therefore, in Scripture is kind of like a damn wall. It's like holding up all of this truth and all of this weight behind it. And out of all of the therefores in Scripture, this one might just be holding up the most, maybe the most immense weight of them all. The writer of Hebrews has been delivering this long and sustained argument to arrive here at this word therefore in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Now, we don't have time to read through all of Hebrews. That would be a worthwhile thing for us to do as the people of God, just to stand together or sit together and read all of Hebrews in one go. I commend you to do that. Sit down this afternoon. It's raining. Put a cup of tea, put the aircon on, and read all of Hebrews in one sitting. It would be a great afternoon. 
But he's been writing this long, sustained argument to arrive here. Chapter 10, verse 19, he writes, Therefore, and he's bringing his argument into sharp and clear focus, bringing his argument into these passages here. He's saying, in light of every single word that I've just written, that's what's behind this word, therefore. And he sums up his argument in this way. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness, To enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and we'll stop there. Two things that are really important that we are said to have here. Since we have. Since we have. The first thing is, we have, the first thing we have is boldness to enter into the sanctuary. And the second thing we have is a great high priest. We have boldness to enter the sanctuary of God and we also have a great high priest over the house of God who acts on our behalf. He's saying we have confidence in our access to God and he's also saying we have confidence in our advocate with God. So let's look at what each of these things mean. Firstly, we have confidence in our access to the Father. The writer of Hebrews here, we're not not exactly sure who it is, but he's assuming that everybody who's reading his letter is familiar with the book of Leviticus. And they're fully aware of the vast and complex sacrificial system that was in place for God's people in the Old Testament. You see, the Jews had a temple It was once a tent and then they built a temple and the temple had inner rooms within inner rooms and the innermost room was this room called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. It was the sanctuary of God. It was where God's presence resided and they had anything but confidence to go in there. Nobody had access to, nobody had confidence to get into that sanctuary. Only one person Only one person out of all of the nation of Israel, only one person was allowed to go into that room and only if he belonged to a certain family in a certain tribe and only if he followed years of consecrated training and preparation to become the high priest and he could only enter in there once per year on a particular day that God designated the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement and only if he followed followed a strict purification uh, regime that that would leave for about a fortnight leading up to the moment that he finally went in. And even after that, there was still no guarantee that he could go in and keep his life. The priests would sometimes perish doing this because the glory of God was so great. And the reason why is because this was the sanctuary, the same sanctuary that the writer of Hebrews mentions there. This was the place, the dwelling place of God. His presence was there. And because all of those things I said just a few moments ago about God are true, that he is perfectly wise, perfectly good, perfectly beauty, perfectly, perfectly beautiful, perfectly holy, perfectly boundless in his knowledge, they are, they are absolutely true. God is holy. Because of that, to enter that sanctuary meant you were entering into the white-hot furnace of the, of the blistering reality of a holy God who had decided that he would reside with unclean people. God in his holiness and his perfection decided, I'm going to dwell with unclean people. A priest entering the sanctuary was filth coming into the presence of perfection. He was unrighteousness entering into the presence of righteousness. He was unholiness, sharing a room with perfect holiness. He had to be made clean. He had to be made righteous. It was his life if he wasn't. So it's absolutely astonishing that the writer of Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, since we have confidence to enter that sanctuary. That's bewildering. That is jaw-dropping. There are some rooms that I have confidence to enter. I don't need to knock to enter my own house. I don't need to knock to enter my own bedroom. 
There are some rooms that I'm a little bit cautious to enter. Like right now, my, my daughter is 12 years old. She's turning 13 soon. I have got reasonable confidence to enter her room, but I knock first out of respect for her. I want to give her her space and her privacy. There are some rooms that I have no business being, being inside of. At the top of that list is the sanctuary of God. Because of my sin, I have no business entering into the presence of God because of my sin. And what we're being told here is not only that we can now enter, which would be stunning in and of itself. Like if all the writer of Hebrews said was, we can now enter, like everybody can enter, that would be absolutely spectacular. That would be stupidly crazy. But he doesn't just say, yes, you can enter. He says, you can have confidence to enter. Like, you can have the same kind of confidence to enter into the sanctuary of God that you have for your own bedroom. Like, I'm, I'm welcome here. I'm meant to be here. It's not that we might have confidence. It's not that we can have confidence. It's not that we will have confidence. It's that we have now, have confidence to enter into God's presence. That's the first thing we're told that we have. The second thing that we're told that we have here is confidence in our advocate with the Father. He says we have a great high priest over the house of God. You see, the priests in the Old Testament, they had this very special job of going into the presence of God, standing in the presence of God, and offering uh, a sacrifice on behalf of the, of the Jewish people, on behalf of the, of the nation of Israel. And the priest would wear this special ephod. It's like this, this breastplate that he would wear. And he would have a, a, on this ephod was these 12 precious stones, each of them representing each of the tribes of Israel. And when he went into there to make sacrifices, he would make a sacrifice for himself for his own sins. And then he would make a sacrifice for the nation's sins. And he would stand there as the nation's advocate. He would stand there on their behalf saying, I'm, I'm here to represent God. And when they would see the priest go in, the, the, the people would see the priest go in to make this sacrifice and they were taught and they would know he is going in on our behalf. He's making this sacrifice. He's our advocate. He is the one who is standing before God on behalf of the people. Have you ever had someone who's just advocated really well for you? Like it might be your mum saying, hey, just, just calm down, let me go talk to your father and we'll see what we can do. Like one of those advocates. Or it might be your friend advocating for you on behalf of, on behalf of you to their employer, saying, hey, I'll put in a good word for you and see if my boss can, can offer you a job. Well, what we have right here is that we have a high priest, when it says we have a high priest over the house of God, saying that we have someone who is standing in God's presence, a great high priest who is in the presence of God, who is right now and forever advocating for us, speaking on our behalf. And unlike the priests of the Old Testament who were sinners and they had to make a sacrifice for their own sin first, Jesus is our great high priest and he doesn't have to make that sacrifice for his own sin because he is perfect, he is righteous, he never once sinned. And the same way that the Old Testament priests, they would one day die and then a new one would have to come and take their place. Jesus is a priest forever. It's not that he entered God's presence once and offered the sacrifice once, but he, he stands on, sorry, he made that sacrifice once, but he stands on behalf of God, on behalf of us, in front of God, advocating to God on our behalf, speaking on our behalf. Jesus is right now and always standing in the presence of God at the right hand of the Father, standing there at our defense, interceding for us, representing us, advocating for us on the grounds of his own sacrifice. When, when it says that Jesus is our advocate, it's not that he's standing there in front of God the Father saying, God, forgive them. Uh, don't you, can't you see how hard they're trying? He's not saying, God, forgive them. Look at, look at their intent. Look at how, it, like, look at how they, they, they really meant the best. He's not saying, God, forgive them for their sins. Look at all the rest of the good stuff that they've done. No, he doesn't say that. He, he advocates for us in the same way that the high priest did with blood. But instead of offering the blood of an animal, Jesus offers his own blood. He says, Father, forgive them. Look at my blood. I've paid their debt. 
Father, they no longer have that impossible debt that they they racked up because of their sin. I have paid it in full. And just so we're on the same page, the Father is not reluctant to forgive. It's not that God the Father is standing in front of Jesus going, I don't know, you better offer a better case than that. No, it was to the joy of the Father that he sent the Son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. It is for their joy, it is for their glory that the, that the Trinity is united in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the Mount Everest of confidence. This is the Mount Everest of confidence. We have a great high priest who stands with God that when we sin, Jesus is there saying, look at my blood, Father. Look at my blood. The Apostle Paul reflects on this exact reality in Romans 8. He asks the question in verse 33, who can bring an an accusation against God's elect? Seriously, who? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Seriously, who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, says Paul. Friends, do you condemn yourselves? Do you say, oh no, God could never love me? I understand that God's love could be for my neighbor. I could understand how God could love that, that other person at church. I can understand how God could love the pastor, but he could never love me. Do you think that God's maybe holding a secret grudge against you? That maybe you're special in a bad way? That out of all the people in the world, you're the one who's really probably pushed his patience to the degree that he's, he's probably going to give up on you? If that's you, who are you to try and silence the advocacy of the Son of Man with the Father? Repent. If you don't think God could love you, that's sin you need to repent because of his great love for us. That is not a thought that a Christian should hold in their heart. That is not humility. That is sin. This truth is a new compass to give us a new bearing. The Father does love me that much that he would send his only Son to die on my behalf. And then the Son returned to the Father to advocate on my behalf perfectly and eternally. We have bold access to the Father, confident access to the Father. When we think of the sanctuary of God, we should think, yeah, I should be in there. We have a great high priest who stands there on our behalf. Now, the important question is, how is it that we have confidence in our access? How is it that we have confidence in that advocate? Is it because we are particularly lovely that God would do this? No, if that were the case, then all it would take for us is for us to feel particularly unlovely, and then we would have our our confidence in God would be forfeit. Is it because we have reached some kind of level of good works that God would reward us with such access? Well, no, all it would take is for us to sin once and then we would be crushed forever under that weight of despair. Now, the reason we have confidence in our access to God, the reason we have confidence in our advocate with God is sandwiched between those two truths. We have confidence in our access to God and confidence in our advocate with God through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. You see, the curtain was the only thing separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that there's a new curtain now. He's inaugurated a new way into the presence and the sanctuary, sanctuary of God. But it's not a, it's not a, a dead curtain. It's not an, an inanimate curtain. It's a living way. It's a living person. It's Jesus Christ. The curtain is his blood and his flesh, which were rent apart on the cross. His body was pierced for our transgressions in our place at the cross. His blood was poured out to pay the unpayable debt. 
If there is a more precious substance on this earth, more precious than the blood of Jesus Christ, we are yet to find it. Jesus' blood, the blood of the eternal and infinite God of the universe, was spilled. His body opened up. His body subject to immense and ongoing pain. His ears subjected to ridicule. His eyes subjected to scorn even from his own friends and disciples. His back was subjected to the whip. His hands and his feet were subjected to the nails. And his life was subjected to the rejection of the Father. On our behalf, in our place, all to give us new life. That's the value and the weight of glory that we have in Jesus Christ. Our identity comes from that. Not what we've done to impress him, but what he's done to save us. How much it's cost God to save us. Friends, get your value and your worth from him. Because it's worth more than anything else we can get from the rest of life. So how then should we live? How, what are we meant to do then? With, this, with the knowledge of this reality. Well, here we have three exhortations, three things that we should do now, three things that we cannot shrug off or delay. These are exhortations made in direct response to these previous two realities. So there's these two realities, two things that we have. We have them because of Jesus. And now there are three more times that the writer of Hebrews says, let us, let us. When I was a kid, we used to play uh, that game where you'd sit in the sort you stand together and you'd have that discussion. And the question was, if you had a million dollars, if you won a million dollars, what would you do with that money? And we'd say things like, well, I'd buy my parents a house and I'd buy a car and I'd buy a car for my friends and I'd buy a house for myself and I'd buy uh, a, beach, a house at the beach and I would do it. Houses were cheaper back then. A million dollars could... <laughs> now, now you might be able to get a garage um, if you're lucky. So the game should be like, what a billion dollar game should be the it, really. But really the substance of that game, the, 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 this, the premise or the subtext of that game was, if you had utter freedom, what would you do? Like if you had nothing holding you back financially, what would you do with that freedom? What would you do if you were utterly free to do whatever you wanted? That's, this is the foundation of these three exhortations. Let's just suppose it is true that we had confidence to enter into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. Let's just say it is true that Jesus is our great high priest because those things are true. What would you do if you had confidence to enter the sanctuary? What would you do if you had a great high priest who was advocating on your behalf? Like, What would you do if you were free from sin forever? That's the question. What would you do if there was no sin that could ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? What would you do if your trashy record of the internal and external sins, whether done by deed or hand or thought or speech, were completely gone? What would you do? Well, here's what God thinks you should do. It's his word, so, so this is his will for Christians. What would God have us do? Well, there's three things. He says, let us draw near, let us hold to the confession, and let us not neglect to gather with God's people. So the first one, let us draw near. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. In other words, since we have confidence to draw near, draw near. Since you have confidence to enter into the presence of God, enter in. God is the most ravishing, delightful, exhilarating, thrilling, satisfying and beautiful being in the universe. And even that is not accurate to say because God is not in the universe. He's not part of the universe. The universe is created by him. He's not just a nice presence. He is the source and bounty of all truth, of all reality, of all wonder and of all worship. Is there anyone like our God? That's the question that the Bible just keeps asking over and over again. Is there anyone like God? The answer is no. There is no one like our God. 
If you can draw near to him without being incinerated by the white-hot purity of his holiness, if you, can, if you can draw near to the center of the universe confidently and without being destroyed, then why would you be anywhere else but with him? You see, what we're being called to here is to do the very thing that the cross was meant to achieve. The purpose of the cross was to reconcile man to kind to God, to eliminate the hostility, hostility between us and him so that we could be drawn near to him, so we could be united to him in relationship and joy. Imagine that you traveled overseas to see an old friend or a family member that you hadn't seen in years, and your plane touched down and you were hoping that they would pick you up from the airport, but they weren't there. You are hoping that they would have you in their house, but... They're full. So you stay in a hotel and you're hoping to spend some time with them and then you find that they're busy and then before long it's, well, I've got to hop on the plane and come back home now. And I didn't really get to see them or speak to them or spend any time with them. Jesus crossed eternity and the universe to be with us, to reconcile us to God. He went to astronomical lengths to give us, the pre- to give us confidence to enter into the presence of God let us enter. Let us draw near to God. And he says to do this with a true heart. Don't hedge your bets. Don't put most of your faith or most of yourself onto God, but hold a little bit back just in case. Now be so confident in Jesus Christ. Go all in on Jesus Christ to the degree that if the gospel is, turns out to be an absolute crock, you will look like an absolute fool because you've put everything on Jesus. That's the measure of faith that we are called to put onto him. To enter with full assurance of faith. To know I'm meant to be here. I don't have to tiptoe into the presence of God. I don't have to second guess if I should be here. I come by the blood of Jesus Christ. Enter with hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with water. No, my guilt is gone. No, I can rest easy. My sin, which dictated and controlled and smeared my life, has been silenced. My sin no longer has any kind of say over me. So what does it mean to enter? We're talking about entering in, but there's not a building that we go to. There's not a place that we go to. This isn't a certain prayer to pray. It's not a a checkbox to tick off. It's really a posture of our hearts, if you will. A deep resolve that the gospel is true. And it's not just true for everyone else except for me, but it's true for me too. It's to know and believe and build your life upon the truth. My, li- my sins are forgiven. Jesus is the most important part of my identity. It means drawing near to God and nothing else. It means opening your mouth to confess your sin. It means, being willing, to, it means willing your heart to truly receive grace. It means rejecting the internal, internal narrative that you don't belong here and that accepting the gospel of grace, it means accepting the gospel of grace and saying with boldness and with tenacity and with great conviction, I am a child of God. The, the voice inside that says, no, you're not. Shut up. That's not true. I am a child of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. It's living your life as if you were a child of God. Every thought, every decision, every process is founded upon and flavored by that wonderful truth. I am a child of God. He is my Father. He loves me more than any earthly father has ever loved his child. Come to the Lord in believing nothing contrary to the fact that your sin has been taken care of. Enjoy the liberation of your sin. Your enjoyment of your salvation glorifies God. Revel in your salvation. Drink deep from that well. Enjoy being saved by Jesus Christ. That's how we enter in. The second thing that we're called to do is to hold to the faith. The exhortation is this. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Now, a mistake that we can make in reading this is to think that what we're being called here to do is to simply be really hopeful, to try and drum up hope and be positive and optimistic about our future. Now, it is a good thing 
to have hope. It's a good thing to be positive and optimistic about our future, but that's not what is being said here. What we're being told to not waver from is the wholehearted belief and the clear articulation of the truth of the gospel. That's what that word confession means. We're being told to hold fast to our confession, the things that we believe, the content of what we believe. That's what we're told not to waver from. And the reason why is because that confession is filled to the brim with hope. That's what gives us our confidence. The people to whom this letter was written to, they were facing immense persecution and suffering. And the question that seems to really have been on their mind was, how do we know that Jesus really has taken care of sin? Is he really worth it or should we look elsewhere to find to shore up our eternal security? The answer is no. The, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he really did take care of sin by receiving the full wrath of God for all of our sins and there is no more debt to pay. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't waver from that confession. Don't waver from that truth. Don't bend to the left or the right of that. Don't, abandon, don't, don't, be, don't be tempted to abandon the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ for something else. If your religion requires you to, to contribute something else to grace, then that is not grace and there is no hope for you. But the grace of God is built upon his faithfulness. He who promised is faithful. He will do it. He will carry you through to the end. He will hold on to you. His blood is enough to cover your multitude of sins. Don't bend to the left or the right of that. Don't think, well, I've also got to be a better person, as appealing as that might be. The third and final exhortation we have here is to let us be with God's people. He says, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. This is another one of those one another's that we find in Scripture. I mentioned before that there was a, there's around 99 of these in the New Testament. This here is number 82, I think. Got close to maybe 83. I couldn't really exactly count. Here we're being told to consider one another. And I got really hung up this, word, this week on that word consider because that's not a, that's not a weak word. That's not just like consider the rain outside right now or it's not just consider something else that's going on. It means to, uh, to dedicate yourself solely to understanding something. It's almost like to study it. We've been told to study one another, not, not in like a stalker kind of way, that would be really inappropriate, but in a way that we really are, uh, we, we're putting one another right in the very depths and the, and the, the, the important places in our heart. It's meant to be that intensive that it provokes more love and more good works in one another. And, and that there is another really strong word, that word provoke. That means to agitate. In one of Paul's letters, he talks about the, uh, the, the disagreement that he had with um, Peter. No, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. The same word being used there. There's this sharp, this sharp disagreement. This is the word used to provoke love and good works out of one another. It means to almost irritate love and good works out of one another. That's what we're being called to. It's so radically and fundamentally, it's just so radically and fundamentally put one another in our hearts and minds that it activates greater depths and great, greater depths of love and greater works in one another. Essentially, he's saying, if you're a Christian, you have the responsibility and the calling on your life to galvanize love and good works in your brothers and sisters. It means that each one of us who is a believer in Jesus has the priority in our lives of discipling others in our lives. This is a call to make disciples, to provoke love and good works, to help one another go deeper in the faith. How do we do this? Well, it will no doubt entail a whole host of ways that we can live this way, but it certainly wouldn't be anything less than what he says next. He says, Not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. 
Apparently, there were some people in this particular church who he was writing to who had formed a bit of a habit that, uh, where, they were gathering, where, where the gathering together with other believers was no longer a priority for them. And as a result, they were no longer encouraging other believers to love and good, to grow in love and good works. This is how it's framed here. Not neglecting the gathering and encouraging one another are two sides of the same coin. By not neglecting the gathering, you are encouraging the brothers and sisters. And by neglecting the, the gathering, neglecting to meet and to spend time and to be involved and to put one another first and to consider one another, you are discouraging the believers to love and good works. It's not a neutral decision. It is an active discouragement to other believers. You see, this had become a habit for some. And that word habit there doesn't suggest that this was just kind of an accidental thing that they sometimes you know, fell into. It's the, the, the Greek word behind that word habit is the word ethos. It's like a philosophy. It's what they believe. It's their, it's their true intent. Since, since moving to the Sunshine Coast from Brisbane, I've had countless conversations with people who have moved to the Sunshine Coast. Uh, and this is a story we heard a lot uh, when we first moved here. The story was, yeah, my friend moved to the Sunshine Coast. They used to be a really solid Christian, but then they moved to the Sunshine Coast and they just stopped going to church. And I don't even know if they're a Christian anymore. I heard that more than I was expecting. That, that was, I heard that story over and over again. And the story that I, the, the conversation that I have with many, many people is, um, I think they say this to me because I'm a pastor and they feel like they need to kind of say to someone, but they're like, oh yeah, sorry, I just kind of got busy and life kind of happened and these things happened. We're kind of in between churches and kind of end up with this thing that we kind of stopped going to church after all. There's nothing new about it. And the way that story often gets told is that it's not an active decision that they made, it just kind of happened to them. Well, what I would suggest is that Hebrews 10.25 is telling a different story. This is their ethos. This is their philosophy. This is their, 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 their adopted set of values, that they prioritize something else. Now, that might sound harsh. You might be sitting here thinking, you know, he only cares about bums on seats, but I really don't. It's in the book. It's written here. And I'm not talking about those who do shift work or who, or the, like for those who, there are people who, in our, many people in our church who can't make it to church regularly on Sundays because of the work that they do. This is not so much talking about that. This is talking about people who have made it their ethos that church is just kind of the, one of the last things. If friends want to have brunch, that's more important. If kids want to play sport on Sunday, that's more important. And I don't want to diminish those things. But what we're being told here is because we have confident access to God the Father, this is what God thinks we should do with such freedom. If that is you, I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that your absence from church is inconsequential or trivial. I don't want you to think that it's just kind of nothing, that church is just this show that you can attend and that it doesn't really matter. The writer of Hebrews says as much. He says, all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the day of the Lord is approaching, the day when the Lord Jesus will return and everyone will have to give an account. It's the day of all days, the steepest of all days. The stakes are never, highway, are never higher than the doorway to eternity. Will you let the reality of God's grace train, transform the way that you view gathering with other believers? Your presence here, whether it's in life group or here on a Sunday morning, to be with, or just in, in meeting with other believers, 
to greet one another at the door, to say good morning, to welcome them, to share tea and coffee, to, to take your seat amongst the saints, to lift your voice in order to sing loudly, to encourage the believers around you, to, to, to join in with citing the creeds and the confessions of sin, to join in with communion, to open your Bible, to read and hear God's word be read and taught, sharing tea and coffee and all the other things that encourage other believers. That's what we're being called to do, to be in one another's lives, to, to consider one another to the degree, to the degree that we are stirring up love and good works. This, this is why I genuinely believe that life groups are just so critical and why they too are part of the gathering. Because when you're in one another's lives and you're sharing life with one another and becoming more and more vulnerable and simultaneously feeling more and more loved by one another, you come to church and you see one another raising hands and taking communion in faith and you're encouraged in your faith. I have this experience, I have this experience last year in our life group. I'm going to embarrass Greg for a moment here. That's all right, Greg. Greg's in our life group last year. And... To, see, to, to journey through life with Greg, to hear what he faces, to pray for him and to have him pray for me. When I see Greg here on Sunday mornings, my heart exalts. I'm lifted up. I'm encouraged in my faith. Because I see another fellow brother, a fellow sinner, who's coming to glorify God with the saints. We're encouraging our faith with this. Now, someone might say, yeah, well, you don't, have to go to, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And that's true. I also don't have to go home to be married. But it won't be good for my marriage. It won't be good for my wife. It won't be good for me. You might say, yeah, well, the church is full of hypocrites. That's absolutely true. And brother or sister, we have a lot of room for one more if you'd like to come and join us. <laughs> You might say, oh, but I've been hurt by the church. And I don't want to discount that. I don't want to discredit that and say, oh, that's nothing. Because I know that there is profound hurt in this room, in the stories of people, from people that they trusted. The reality is, is that we are called into such close proximity with one another that being hurt is kind of inevitable. Like if you're part of this church and you're yet to be hurt or offended by someone in this church, please just be patient. It will, your time will come. But we are called into such close proximity. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. We are called into such close proximity with other believers, with other sinners, because we're sinners. If it's not for the grace of God, we will kill each other. That's how close we're meant to be with one another. But we're also called not just to come close to one another, but to come into the presence of the throne of grace. We are called to be in one another's lives so much that we really frustrate one another, but then we have grace at hand because we are in the sanctuary. We are children of God. And we are more than willing to demonstrate grace to one another because of how much we've received from Jesus. You will never have to show more grace to anybody in this room than what you have been shown by Jesus Christ. Friends, we don't just gather on Sunday mornings and in life groups for a good show and a bit of entertainment. We come with a clear, distinct and unavoidable purpose to encourage one another with our gracious presence. It's why we should turn up. It's why we should shake hands. It's why we should ask how they're going. It's why we should pray for one another. It's why we should sing loudly. It's why we should stick around afterwards. It's why we should take communion in the way that we do. And we're going to take communion now as a church. And communion is not ordinarily just an individual thing between you and God. This is not you and God time. You can have that you and God time. I mean, it is, but this is also us and God time. It's us with one another. You see, we're declaring something to one another. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that whenever we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We don't proclaim something on our own. We proclaim something to someone else. What we're doing here is we're, we're proclaiming something to each other. We're telling each other about, about the God who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We're saying to each other, your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. Your shame is washed away. Your guilt is removed. Enter boldly, brother. Enter boldly, sister. Take communion boldly this morning, Christian, because of what Jesus has done for you. Because this is a corporate thing, one of the things that I get so much delight about on Sunday mornings, it's almost one of my favorite parts of a Sunday service, is just that two or three minutes that it takes for us to stand up, hop out of our chairs and come up the front or go to the back and collect a cracker and a cup of juice. Greet one another. Say good morning. It's not a library. You don't have to be quiet. Say good morning to one another. Make eye contact with one another. This is about saying something that is true about us and saying something that is true about everybody else who's taking communion. And this is why we say each week that if you're here and you're a Christian, you are most welcome to come and take communion with us. And if you're not a believer, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't believe the gospel, then... There's obviously no pressure because we don't want you to take communion. We don't want you to say something is true about you when it isn't, but it could be. It could be because the invitation is there for you to receive his grace. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make yourself a a slightly bit better, like 10% better for God to love you just enough to save you. Come in all of your sin. Receive the grace of Jesus Christ. He wants to welcome you. The way we do it, I'm going to invite you in just a second to come up and collect a cracker and one of those cups of juice and take it back to your chairs and then we'll take it all together as the family of God. We're going to declare to one another by taking it that Jesus did die, that Jesus did rise again and that we are saved because of his sacrifice. So why don't we do that now? Collect a cracker, a cup of juice, take it back to your chairs and then uh, we'll take it together in just a few minutes. Let's do that now. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.